Join me and Art Date Social Club for a queer and BIPOC-friendly community that offers a safe space for artists and art lovers to connect about their craft, network with one another, and grow professional development skills. To become an official member, you can subscribe to the paid version of my Art Date Substack for only $10 a month. You can get access through this to all the paid content on my Substack, free access to the monthly online meeting groups, discounts to in-person meetings and workshops, as well as online ones, and access to the WhatsApp group for artists, which will have opportunities, skill sharing, and other networking goodies going on there. I started this group because over the holidays, I heard how isolated everybody was feeling and know that it's hard to find community, especially if you're living in a big city. And it's just nice to have people to check in with regularly, learn new skills from, and, you know, be able to take classes from people you trust and with people you trust in a safe space. If you, for some reason, want to test out the waters, I am currently offering weekly meetups online at meetup.com, and I will be updating that on the Eventbrite where I'm hosting all of these events. So you can check those out as well. You go to Meetup and then search for Art Date Social Club. Members will also get first access to any retreats that we do. We are currently scheduling multiple one-day and weekend retreats in the Bay Area, Los Angeles, and possibly Joshua Tree, looking at Iceland. So it's going to be a really fun kind of global adventure, and members will definitely get first pick. We'll probably start kind of small. So if you want to get on the mailing list for that, you can just join up our Date Social Club. If you, for some reason, do feel like you need some financial support but still want to be part of the community, you can just email me at artdatesocialclub at gmail.com. And I'm happy to offer subscriptions for people in need. So again, you can go to my art date substack at artdate.substack.com forward slash subscribe. I'd really love for you to join me and just find inspiration and get our creativity flowing and help each other through this super weird lifestyle called being an artist. Anyway, hope to have you there. Thanks so much. This is Sarah Tebow, and I'm the host of the SideWoo podcast. Join me for conversations about mental health and metaphysical issues from the lens of living a more creative, fulfilling, and connected life. From the physical to the metaphysical and beyond, welcome to the SideWoo. Hi, SideWooers. This is Sarah. This episode is the first of many that I have recorded and produced in the studio at the Space Program Residency here in San Francisco, where I have been for the last month and a half. And if you have been following my Instagram at all, you might have seen some posts about that. I just want to say a big thank you to Judd and Jacob, who are the two founders of the program and who allowed me to use their space, both for my paintings and their beautiful recording studio. So thank you so much to them. I'm almost at the end of my month here, but luckily for you, dear listener, you are at the beginning of the podcast journey that is the 10 episodes that I am producing from this residency. So yes, it is a crazy amount of work, and I am really excited because I would have never talked to a lot of the people who became guests because of this residency with without being here and having the space to do it in person. So I'm really excited. And to kick things off, this week's episode features someone who I've known for more than 10 years at this point. It is Libby Black, an artist and educator who I knew in grad school, and she was one of my most influential advisors that I had. And I worked with her a lot in my two years at CCA. And I would say her work is most known as paper reproductions of luxury goods. So like a Louis Vuitton handbag or a pair of Gucci loafers. Uh, I think there was like a Chanel surfboard at one point. But then she also, since that body of work, she has expanded into more everyday objects. Like she recently did a show at 500 Cap Street here in San Francisco and had a bunch of mops and a bucket that was referencing something that she had found in the space. 
So she's very versatile. She also has a really strong traditional painting practice. In addition to being inspired by the same kind of like luxury good culture, she, during the pandemic, did a series of paintings of the front page of the New York Times as a way to kind of catalog the experience of going through the pandemic. And um, I don't know if you can hear that little like munching noise, but that is Blue the cat who I'm cat sitting and he's just eating his little snacks behind me. <laughs> so, um, But Anyway, yeah, our conversation, Libby and I, it was really awesome. And it was so good to see her and sit down because normally I have just been seeing her in passing at an opening here or there. And we had so much to talk about. And I felt like this could have gone on for hours. But the main themes that came up during our conversation were talking about her sobriety. She's now 10 years sober as of May. She, when I talk about lesbian representation or the lack thereof in, mainstream media and pop culture historically and then how things are kind of evolving and then finally we talk about her swimming Alcatraz which yes it is exactly what it sounds like you swim from Alcatraz into the shore of the San Francisco Bay and you know I've thought a lot about doing crazy outdoorsy activities like you know hiking for a bunch of miles in the Grand Canyon Climbing a mountain that's not too high, but maybe requires special training. But I have never once even slightly been interested in swimming Alcatraz or anything like that. So I'm so impressed. And I think she took away a lot of really cool life lessons, too. So anyway, I'm excited about this episode. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can always email us at thesidewoo at gmail.com. If you enjoy our episode, please feel free to subscribe, rate, review, and share the side woo with your woo woo friends on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram for updates at the side woo. I also, as you may know, have a Substack called Art Date, where every time I release a podcast, I write an episode, kind of recap about it and share a link to the episode. So if you'd like, you can be a free subscriber and still get all those emails. If you'd like to throw us a couple bones here at the SideWoo, you know, a monthly subscription is $5. You can also find it on Medium, which if you're a paid subscriber, $5 will get you access to everyone's newsletters and everything. So, you know, think about doing one of those. But without further ado, I will leave you to the episode. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy. Well, hello. Welcome, Libby. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, So I always start... Oh, there I go clapping. I always (laughs) start with what sign are you? And so, I don't know. Do you know your sun sign in I just astrology. know I'm a Gemini that's it oh cool sign of the twin can't make a decision to save my life oh really okay yeah. I I wouldn't associate that with Gemini like oh. they're known for being shady oh <laughs> yeah would am I shady I probably have shady qualities yeah oh interesting but I'm not, I don't think I feel I'm pretty genuine Yeah, well, I feel like you, Geminis, are kind of known for having, like, two sides, which I feel like knowing you first as a professor, like, you do have, like, a tough, like, public persona, and then once you get to know you, you're very nice. And Not that you weren't nice, but, you know. No, I think I have resting bitch face. Yeah, it's definitely a cool factor, but then once you get to know you, like, you have, like, a warmth. and That's good. I, when I start off every semester I tell my students I go I look like a bitch I was born with this face (laughs) but I'm pretty nice not apologizing yeah you just have to communicate with me just talk to me you know do you ever wonder why do you feel like you came out of the womb from a past life that was really traumatic or something you know my mom always said that she thought I was a twin in the womb because she had some heavy bleeding Oh, so she thought she lost the other the other whatever but I think it's probably a survival thing being raised with two older brothers and Mm. and growing up in Texas 
as a woman. And yeah, well, I was born in Ohio, Toledo, Ohio. Oh, okay. And when I was a sophomore in high school, we moved to Plano outside of Dallas. So got it. But I I don't know. I got to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I came out screaming a lot. Like oh. Um, and then I've done some like research into past life stuff, and I apparently had a lot of violent ends oh. in my past life, including the most recent one. So I wondered. Once I found that out, I'm like, I wonder if that's connected to how angry I was as a baby. You don't seem angry to me. I'm at not all. anymore, but you like seem at the time, like chill. Yeah, like you got a good. Oh, that's good. Calm presence. Well, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> I'll try to keep that persona. No, <laughs> since I met you, you've always had that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask what your kind of spiritual practice slash you know, maybe how it evolved as you were growing up, because growing up in the Midwest and Texas, I'm sure there was organized religion, but. Yeah, I mean, my parents took us to a Lutheran church. Oh, yeah. Um, Very and, Midwest. Yeah. And then my brothers, I think at some point said, we don't want to go to church anymore. And then right. we stopped going. Um, and I think. um that is like organized religion, but I think spirituality is something different um, mm -hmm. for me. And I think I've become way more spiritual in the last 10 years of my life. I'm 10 years sober. Yeah, I was going to ask if that was connected. Yeah, it's totally connected. I don't believe in organized religion at all. And I think it was hard for me in terms of like being gay and just the hypocrisy and you're sinning. And so I have a lot of like, I have less now, but shame in that. Um, but I think getting sober and working a program and having a spiritual practice every day, which for me looks like a gratitude list. Oh, cool. I do that too. Yeah. I try to write down five things I'm grateful for. Me too. I to, just started that. Yeah. How long have you been doing that? Since I got sober. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. And then I write down gratitude. I write down two things I want to remember and one thing I want to forget. Oh, wow. Every day. Yeah. And oh, that's cool. Lately, I've been in the practice the last probably six months of writing about my fears, like what mm. I'm what I have fear. I mean, I feel like people either they act in love or they act in fear. Totally. Those are the two things. So I've been trying to like because like I got a lot of fear. So I want to yeah. I want to let that go. That's really cool. And when you decided to get sober, what was like kind of the underlying issue that you felt like you really had to tackle? Well, I'm an alcoholic, for one. And so I feel like I used alcohol as liquid courage. I mean, yeah. it's kind of a basic to go out to to an opening. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, like, it's funny in the art world. It's like there's liquor everywhere, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It goes hand in hand with, I think, being an artist. And this is so pure and simple. But I didn't understand if you're drunk, you can't feel the good and you can't mm. feel the bad so you're mm. emotionally stunted yeah right so yeah. they say when you start drinking is actually the age you are when you stop drinking oh well wow. like emotional mm -hmm. um levels so for me it like took those loud voices out of my head just like sh yeah like took the edge off so I have to do other things to cope now with that. And one of that's gratitude, mm -hmm. and which is good because you can get caught up in like, oh, that person got this or that. Oh, my and God. It's resentments of literally. Bitch. <laughs> Sorry, excuse my language. Oh, my God. No, bring it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like it's yes. just mellowed me in that way to be not be so self-centered and focused and mm -hmm. be like there's something greater than me out there and I'm not in charge and I am powerless to all of this. Right. And are you doing a program? Yeah, I have a program. Yeah. Because like, you know, I'm not an alcoholic, but I stopped drinking because I do have certain addictive traits and it shows up, especially for work. I'm afraid to go to Workaholics Anonymous yeah. type meeting because I'm not ready to give that up as a crutch yet. Yeah. Mm. What do you mean by that? Like working in the studio or like just working in general as a way to like you know, if I have free time, it's easier to think about a project that I want to work on than 
to like risk going out and doing something that's outside my comfort zone or meet new people. And that definitely has caused burnout at different times in my life. And as a result of that drive, I didn't take care of my health in different ways and wouldn't abuse alcohol to the point where I'd black out, but just physically it would really wear me down to be drinking and then drinking a lot of caffeine and then having this kind of reduced like immune state that then led to me not doing other things in addition to that, you know? So for me, it was just like my physical health has taken a dive when I've kind of leaned too heavily on things like working and not enjoying life. And that totally comes from family. But I don't know where I was going with that. I think it's maybe how old are you? Um, 42. Yeah, I'm 47. I think our generation in the sense of like we were just like show up and do work, just make work. And like it doesn't matter if you're sick or you like you just keep pounding. Yeah. And that is like a real I mean, I think that mindset for me has helped kind of inflame my alcoholism. Yeah. Because like it was the push like, through go, mentality. Go, go. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's been part of it too is like this lack of questioning about the motivation behind what I was doing and that got me into jobs that were really unfulfilling you know which caused a lot of misery and like yes we all need to make money but I think there's a way to find peace with the work that you do and have it be fulfilling too at the same time yeah but I think I was afraid that that wasn't the case and so I never like for a long time I didn't even try to find that feeling, you know? And so I just kind of was like, produce, produce, produce. That's my value. And so I'm going to just keep doing it. But kind of like you said, the numbing that happens as a result of it, like instead of dealing with challenging things that come up, like kind of just pushing through and ignoring them. Or if you're really busy with work, you don't have as much time. Or I'm sure it's similar to alcohol like you don't have as much time to focus or energy to focus on other things so like yeah the smallness of your world is really protective yeah but yeah I stopped drinking which has helped and then I've stopped drinking caffeine for the most part which has also helped because it just has made my body more available to making better choices yeah I don't know something about that physical health has made a big difference yeah I can't let go about of coffee right now I just, I've thought about it and I'm just like I have cut out a lot of stuff in my life and it's a tough one I don't know I don't drink it all day I just have two cups a day and yeah I miss it a lot like it's probably the thing I miss the most right now yeah and I kind of started doing it because I got into energy work and it like oh. kind of messed with that yeah um but I'm like you know maybe down the line if I'm in a different place I would enjoy yeah drinking more coffee again <laughs> I know I need to get I need to get rid of it but oh really I'm just yeah and so in terms of your own journey with sobriety how did that come um, about yeah I just it got so much bigger than me mm. um in my head the you know where's the waitress at my glass is empty do I have enough alcohol in my house? It got so, it took over me. My alcoholic voice just took over me. And so. And were you with Jen at the time? Yeah. Your partner? Yeah. Yeah. I've been with Jen for 23 years. So. Game, yeah. yeah. I just, May 21st, I had 10 years. So. Yeah. I saw your post. Yeah. I don't like to talk about it a lot because it's kind of like attraction rather than promotion. And wait, what do you mean by that? Um, I think a lot of people that I used to drink with, I had to clean house a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I. Can I, you talk about that? Because I do feel like there's people even since, you know, I stopped drinking that once they find out that I don't drink, there is this awkward moment where they're like, oh, what do I do? You know, and there are people maybe I don't know as well. Yeah. They, yeah, people get really squirmish. And it's funny because I was that person too. So when I was drinking, I didn't want people to look at me and count my drinks. And I was really aware of, you know, I wasn't super sneaky, but I was sneaky enough Mm. where I was lowering my morals. Mm. So like you were hiding how much you were drinking. I was hiding. And I think I was a highly functional alcoholic in some way. But for me, 
I'm very open about it, but I'm also, I feel like as soon as you start talking about it, people get really judgy and people can drink half a drink and leave it on the counter. I can't leave any half drunk. You know what I mean? Like Jen and I would go out and she wouldn't finish her glass of wine and I'd be like, what? You can't do that. You know what I mean? You've got to finish it. So I got um, my sobriety date, 5-21-13, tattooed on my wrist. And this morning I said to Jen, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I, you know, I have 10 years sobriety. And I can't believe that I got this tattooed on me. It was like one of those things like, you know, they say when you stop drinking just for today, right? Because I got overwhelmed, like, what am I going to do at weddings or at New Year's? And it's like the fact at New Year's I'm actually asleep at 930 or like how many weddings do I actually go to, right? And so I got this and I just felt like, oh, this is really intense that I got this tattoo. But then I also, my grandmother died on the same day. So I, this is horrible in the back of my head. I'm like, well, if something happens, that date still represents something. Oh, interesting. But yeah. then we were kind of talking offline that you felt maybe there was a connection and I immediately my mind went to like, oh, your grandmother, as soon as she died, she like came back down and was like, Libby, <laughs> yeah. you know, we got to get you sober. Yeah, I think I've tried to think about how that was like her dying and then me, yeah, that day. M- me being like, what was that day like? Um, I just woke up and I just felt like this was so much bigger than me and I can't control this. I can't. And had con- she already passed? She passed away early like four in the morning and um and you woke up after that I woke up after that my dad called but I didn't answer and I went swimming oh wow so I swam laps that morning and I came back and then I called my dad she had lung cancer so I knew we knew there was like two years of whatever sickness so yeah, I don't know. I think it happened for a reason. Like, I think it kind of the timing aligned. And, you know, it's kind of like spirituality where you something happens and you are holding on to it and it's like sand and it goes through your fingers. But you're always kind of searching for I wouldn't necessarily say meaning, but that spark or that sign of something you're on the right path. Mm-hmm. So I think I can't articulate it fully about my grandmother dying and me getting sober on that same day. But to me, that it just makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, so my dad passed two years ago now and he had a friend that they would play in a band together, like two dudes. They were called the Incredible Shrinking Men Uh (laughs) and they would play at local cafes in Minnesota. But that friend was, I think, diabetic and had a major drinking problem yep. to the point where, you know, he was in his 70s or whatever. He would be like blacking out and fall and hurt himself. And when my dad died, he decided to get sober and went through like cold turkey. And he told my mom afterwards that my dad was there helping him get sober through his kind of whatever weird state that he was in. Yeah. But he he was like, oh, J- you know, Jack was definitely there helping me. His spirit was like there. Oh, helping this his friend. Yeah, his friend oh, like, yeah. get through his transition into sobriety. Did your dad drink? No, not oh. at all. But that is so like my dad to be like, let yeah. me help you. But I feel like, I don't know if you felt like your grandma was present during that at all. I think she was. I think death reminds us how we want to live. That's kind of the message from it. And to me, family trauma and alcoholism runs in my family. And so it's kind of breaking the cycle of that, and that I don't have to pass that on. I mean, Jasper's not biologically mine. Um, Jen gave birth, but... Um, but that patterning. But yeah, and the trauma and like not being present for your child. And so to me, or myself, like just like... I think they pick up on it energetically, you know, yeah. kids do. And so it doesn't matter if you're technically related or whatever. Yeah. But I if think you're around that, this person, you know, it's also mm-hmm. like I don't want to take it out on my students, right? right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, At the very least. Yeah. yeah. My grandma was great. She was a Southern woman. She made really good fried chicken. She was, you know, like I smoked cigarettes in front of her before I smoked in front of my mom. You know, what I mean? like she was good. And I went. And saw her in Florida every year. And 
She was a really good grandma. Oh. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it wasn't like she was like, Libby, you have a drinking problem, you know? I remember, though, the last time I saw her in her house before she was like in a place, I was drinking and Jen said to me, you need to go in and talk to her. Oh, well. So like she came, sat down at the table with me and we had really good conversation. I asked her questions that, you know, just about her life and stuff like that. And that was good. It would have been probably great if I was a little bit sober, but mm. I I did reach out and the last conversation I had with her, she had a very raspy voice and she was like, okay, that's all I have to say. And that was the last time I talked to her. It was pretty powerful, you know? Wow. I think she just was like calling to say goodbye. She wasn't super emotional in that way, but I knew like that was it. She's like, that's all I got to say. Bye. I love She'd be like, I love you, baby. I love you so much. You know, like she was really, it was beautiful. She was a beautiful woman. I love that. I had something similar with my grandpa that I was thinking about the other day where he was not demonstrative at all. Yeah. But I knew it was the last time we were talking on the phone. Yeah. And I said, I love you. And he's like, you know, I love you too. And then that was it. Yeah. And that was the first time I'd ever told him I loved him. Yeah. And I could tell it would embarrass him. Yeah. And so I didn't say it. But then I think the fact that I said it, he was like, good, that's a, that's yeah. our, <laughs> you yeah. know, that's a good way to leave it. But that's clean. That's really clean living. It was very clean. No regrets. I mean, we're always going to have regrets to some degree, but like, that's beautiful. Yeah. It's like you packaged it up. One just trusting that instinct of like, I know this is the end. Yeah. You know, too, I think. Sometimes we get that message, but then don't listen to it. And that's where regrets can come in or second guessing or. Yeah. Death is a really, you ever see What Remains by Sally Mann, the documentary? Oh, I haven't. Watch Mm -hmm. that. Okay. What Remains, it's a documentary about Sally Mann and she talks about death a lot. And those photographs of, um, you can donate your body to like the body farms and then they watch your body decompose in the forest. Okay. They're beautiful photographs. And anyway, you'll like it. She's really, really, Sally Mann is like my top five. You know what I mean? Oh, wow. She is phenomenal. Yeah. I'm serious. You're going to watch that and I want you to text me and tell I, me what you thought. I will. It's I promise. So good good so assignment. Good. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I try to show it to my students too, even though I'm not teaching photo because it talks about her making this work and then the backlash and like, I won't spoil it, but yeah. you'll see. And then at the end, when you make a body of work, you know, this deflation and like, what do you do when you're done with the show? I mean, you know, it's like a big depression when you're done. You're like, it is. OK, now you got to like build yourself back up. And yeah, it's like these ebbs and flows of making in the studio. Totally. Yeah. I remember after my first solo show out of grad school, I was had a studio with Kirk Stoller uh-huh. and I was telling him like, oh, I just feel so bummed out. And he's like, oh, it's just like postpartum. Yeah. You got to give yourself six months or whatever to. Kirk, what a great I know. guy. Love him. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. But yeah, I know. So miss you, Kirk. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it's real. And I think yeah, you got to give yourself that space to like honor the loss of like. But people don't talk about that in school. Like, that's another thing. Like That's very true. Because you're about, too busy being like, oh, my God, I got to get a show. Yeah. And then I think people are really immediately jealous of people who get the shows. Yeah. But there's people who I see, I'm like, that's everything that you wanted. But I'm sure that's hard because then now that's it. You yeah. Know? Like, not to say that it's it, it, but. Yeah. I think Dave Mueller said it's the same people on the way up as it is on the way down. Totally. Right. So if you're like up there by yourself, like that's a hard. Is it Mueller? Dave Miller? Mueller. Mueller. Bueller. Mueller. He's an (laughs) L.A. artist. He does the record spines. Awesome. Like watercolor. Yeah. Music. He does like the DJing and stuff. Like he's he shows at Anthony Meyer Gallery. Anyways. Yeah, it's true. Nobody talks about that in school. You're only in a race with yourself and like. You've got to pace yourself. Yes. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. Yeah, I think, um, who was I talking to? She's an artist at MSP. I'll, I'll like put in her name here. Hi, real quick. Her name is Masako Miyazaki. But yeah, she was like, there's three things that you got to do. Manage your money, 
manage your time and be kind. Yeah. To be a good artist. Like those are like three. And if you do at least two, you'll be fine. Yeah. The manage the money thing. I cannot. I don't want to think about money because that's when things go. Nope. I don't want to worry about that. I just don't. Do you have student loans? I mean, I've, I paid them off finally. Oh, good job. But once I start thinking about the money with my work, that's when the work gets oh, damaged. Absolutely. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Roxanne Gay talked about this. She did like a podcast over the pandemic where she was like, just go get a nine to five job. Don't let it affect your writing. Come home and then you can write whatever the hell you want. I mean, that's how I feel about my job is like I get to like I'm stable enough that I have this job. I can pay my bills and I can go to my studio and just, you know. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I know. That's why I got like a job at PwC for that reason. Yeah, it's very freeing. Although some people seem to make it work. Good for them. Where they can just like pump things out and it's like no complications in their mind about like money yeah. and art. So that's great. I envy those people. Yeah, I can't do that. I don't I don't want to do that. And I also never had the opportunity to do that. So that's just to make the record straight. <laughs> I know. I do wonder what it'd be like to have like a Laura Owen yeah. style waiting list for Three years, like I don't I know think if I like that. That's cool in the beginning, but after time, I think that would be exhausting. Be that's ex my opinion. Exhausting and maybe a little bit of a bummer that what you were working on wasn't going to go to something bigger, or you know, I yeah, don't know. yeah. But steady paycheck is nice. So yeah. Well, I think too, giving back is my. I want to do that. I want to. Oh yeah. Talk to students about stuff that I never was talked about and like I feel like I can't take this stuff with me and I want to try to support that's my community in this way where I'm supporting my students as much as I can trying to get them out there and that they can do the work that they want to do you know yeah I would say that is the one thing as I spend all this time alone in the studio I think I really, even now that I'm not working the day job, I need that time to connect with people and, like you said, give back or share what I learned. That feedback is just as important as making the work for me. Yeah. So we took a quick break during this conversation. The conversation's going to switch back now to Libby talking about recovery. I'm trying not to be preachy. I feel like I need a lot of things. I needed therapy, which has been really good. Although my therapist retired during COVID, which was oh wow, um, crazy hard. But oh no, I actually stopped working with my therapist during COVID too because yeah. I think it just got to be too much for her. But yeah, no, my therapist was amazing. She's at the end of her career. I think the thing for me about being sober is I got to work on myself. Yeah. And I got to work on myself, which means I got to work on my relationship with my partner, my relationship with my kid, my relationship to my art, my relationship to being a professor at San Francisco State. And I get to come with my full authentic self and awkward and vulnerable and have humility and love myself. You know what I mean? That mm -hmm. sounds kind of a little weird, but no, like... No, it doesn't at all. I just wrote like a blog post about that, how I've just been like trying to shed the parts of myself that are like kind of abandoning my inner self, yeah. you know, like the cool yeah. girl is one that I just wrote about who's like, I know how to be in this like art context, but like it's like abandoning the real self yeah. you know, through that persona. Of, yeah. So I get that. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it was that. And it like I needed a lot of and I still do. Working on yourself is a constant thing. I wonder if there's people who come into this life and don't have to. Because I do think some people that is just their journey. But uh, that's good for them. <laughs> I feel like not everyone does as much therapy as I've done. You know, like I always wonder, like, oh, how is your life a little bit smoother in that area? You know, everyone's yeah. got something. But. Do you feel like, do you believe in karma or anything? I totally believe in karma. Oh, cool. So do you feel like, what is your karma in this life that you've been working on? Um, well, I'm not sure if it's like, this is a direct correlation, but like, I just don't want to be an ass. Oh, I'm trying yeah. not to be an ass. So the bitch face thing, like. Put you at a disadvantage. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially too, when you're drinking, like I would wake up oh, at yeah. three in the morning with a hangover and be like, oh, fuck, who did I piss off? Who do I have to make amends yeah. to the next morning? And now being sober, it's like when I do inventory on myself and I mess up, I can make amends right away. And I'm not perfect. But that to me is 
cleaning house and staying in my lane. Totally. Like if I stay in my lane and don't swerve in someone else's lane and try to like tell them what to do, I'm good. Which I'm sure that's super hard as a teacher. It's really hard as a teacher. And I cannot believe actually <laughs> some of the things I say now in my class that I never thought I would say. You know what I mean? Like, oh, well. I would, I'm like, this is my suggestion. You don't have to take it. This is what has worked for me. We need you to be you. You don't need to be Libby Black. You be you. We yeah. need you in the world. That's how it is I for love me. It. That's a great piece of advice. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. You probably grew up, too, with, like, these kind of white men making women cry in the class, right? Like, it's very art. Like, oh, yeah. Like, that was my undergrad experience was I had a couple teachers like that. Yep. And my high school teacher, actually, Mr. Norla, was, like, so inappropriate. And I was, luckily or not, I was a good <laughs> drawer so yeah. he thought I was really cool you know yeah. like I got the special attention then I was like super mean to him because I was deflecting it but yeah I would see him go around to other people in class and be like that's no good that's no good and he'd be like that's NFG no fucking good oh wow yeah and he the same man I mean I like part of me loves him because the same guy ended up faking a heart attack in a different class for the first day of the semester I was in the drawing room to the side. Oh. And then there was a class that he was starting, and he, the first like two minutes, pretended to have a heart attack. Why? Because he was bored or something. And then he got up and was like, just kidding. Do you know how much trauma people are dealing I, like with that now? I mean, it was like 20 years ago, but. But still, I, like you're still thinking about it. Well, and he called me short crotch in front of the whole class. Short crotch? Short crotch. So What's he was. What does that mean? I don't, just because I was short. I was putting up a drawing for a critique, and he goes, oh, sure, crotch, you do, da, da, da. you know, and I was like, um, excuse me, like, yeah. what the fuck is wrong with you? You know, looking back, I didn't have a cool female art teacher. Like, yeah. there was one in the building, but I never worked with her, you know, and and then in undergrad, I definitely worked with, like, the cool art bro, you know, and who yeah. the tone of the class was very much, like, pecking order I think because they were trying to impress him it was this energy of let's tear people down you know and like be really kind of in your mind and not interested in being curious or I don't know but it, it was interesting to be exposed to because I feel like that is a lot of the art world yeah it is yeah I got Mr. Cintron was that for me and at Cleveland Institute of Art and it was a life drawing class and we would put our gesture drawings up on the model stand and he'd go through them and okay. I would be the last one and he would always hold it up and be like this is what you don't do in a gesture drawing really? and he didn't know my name the whole semester oh my god and I just thought I'm never gonna be that professor yeah like, thank you Mr. Cintron for showing me what not to be absolutely yeah well, and I feel like post-pandemic, too, I don't know if you changed your approach at all, but it feels like the level of heaviness that we're all dealing with requires a different approach. Yeah, coming from our generation in terms of like we showed up, we didn't say, oh, I can't make it. We didn't have language or boundaries or tools to help ourselves to take care of ourselves right. through the semester. So we just showed up. I mean, and so... Now I'm just like, you show up if you can and show up if you can't. I don't put my energy and focus on that. I used to, when I first started teaching, get really upset about that. Like, you can't show up for class. What do you mean? But now yeah. it's like, you know what? If they don't show up, I can't force anybody to do anything. It's like, I'll make you a plate of food. I think I'm a good cook, but I can't force you to eat it. You know? Right. Yeah. So that's cool. That's to me, healthy. it's like, come, I'll be here. I'm here for you. Right. If you want to come and draw with me. That's Amazing. all I got, you know? Yeah, I love that. And how has your art for yourself played into this journey? Do you feel like it's evolved as you've shifted your priorities? And I am so grateful for the opportunities and shows and all of that with my career that I've had. And I think what's really great is that I'm fortunate that I have this job that I can go into my studio and I can make whatever work I want to make. And it's not beholden to art sales or I don't have to press anybody. I want to make the work that I want to make. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny. 
I'm in this show right now at the Craft Museum. Oh, right on Third Street? Yeah, like oh, cool. Flight or Fight. And it's a sculpture. It's a stack of dishes with like a dirty sock and oh, yeah. um, a turkey baster. And like Did you, you show that at Gallery 16? Yeah, it was at Gallery 16. Okay. And I joked to myself, no one's going to buy a stack of dirty dishes. But I wanted to make it. I wanted That was a piece I made during the pandemic oh, about cool. like, you know, we were in the kitchen and it was like, I who fucking cares about sourdough bread? I wasn't into that no. trend. But it was just like so glaring and so right there that the dishes are never done. You know what I mean? Totally. And it's yeah. just like this constant. They're never, ever going to be done mm-hmm. until you're dead and you're not cooking for right. yourself. So that was kind of crazy. I feel like it speaks a little bit to women's labor too, yes. like the domestic. And- yeah. And that piece is about that too, because when I started dating Jen, I got a question for my brother who was like, well, who runs the grill? And I think he was really trying to figure <laughs> out together. who was like the top or the bottom in the relationship, you know, like, yeah, who's the masculine one who's I mean, and Jen and I can play both roles like she can change the wax thing on a toilet and yeah, I can cook and I can go do garden work. She can do laundry. We can do a lot of things. Well, and like not to undercut that, but all women can, yeah, you know, yeah. and I think that's like, yeah, one of the things I wanted to ask about was this idea that there's a lack of representation around lesbians and popular culture and an understanding that one, it's not just like a monolithic culture and that also it's just women and women's stories and why aren't we being more represented just period and in different ways, you know, how was like growing up, like what did you turn to as like a guide for how you wanted to be or did you have anything to kind of help you? When I saw that question, when you emailed that to me, the first thing that came to mind was watching Chris Ebert and Martina Never to Love play tennis. Oh, cool. Right. And there was like this big rival between them. Yeah. But like Chrissy Ebert was the pretty blonde and mm. Martina was a blonde too, but she was more butch. Yeah. But it seemed like everybody in my house like growing up, wanted Chrissy Everett to win. But I was always intrigued by Martina. I had never seen somebody that had that kind of masculine butch presence. So I don't I didn't have a language. I didn't have a lot of those things. And I also didn't know where to go look. I was probably scared. I probably had fear. You know what I mean? I mean, I know like when we moved I know I was always attracted to women like in high school, but I didn't know that that could be pursued, I guess. And then I came out in college. And so, yeah, I think now I just eat up any sort of movie or TV show that has a lesbian or queer character in it. Even I mean, there's some of them are so bad. They're kind of painful and finding old romance novels. Yeah, because that was some of your earliest work, right? Was the Pulp Fiction, <laughs> yeah, yeah. lesbian romance fiction. Or yeah. And who was reading that really anyways? Like maybe men? I don't yeah. know. But like for me, it was like, oh, yeah, the straight girl who wants to, you know, get with another woman. I had a lot of those women, but yeah. not a lot. I'm not like that. But like <laughs> I had a handful of those women. You were very busy. Yes, no. Yeah. <laughs> was like, oh, yeah, I want to dabble in that. There's Libby over there. It's torture. So the movie that made me want to ask that, and and I talked to Kate Rhodes a little bit about it, too, because she did a residency in Porto, Portugal, Uh which is where her family's from. And her project was to seek out the lesbians in the town. And, you know, I think from just visiting, I remember there was like one gay bar for sure, but I don't think it was specific to lesbian culture or anything. And she just said, like, she's really wondering where where are the lesbians at, you know, because I do think there, you know, in San Francisco, there aren't any lesbian bars left. Right. Yeah. As far as I know. And well, there's El Rio has like a ladies night. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, too. Like I came to graduate school in San Francisco because I wanted I didn't pick CCA because it was a school I wanted to go to I picked San Francisco because I wanted to be in the gayest city that was really important to me and CCA was great I don't have any yeah I mean 
It was fine for my education, but I literally moved here for a location. I live in Berkeley now, and just on my street, there's queer people, trans people, you know, all different culture. I feel really lucky that I get to raise a kid, a, a boy, in a place where he has friends who have two moms. That's really important to me. And so I think I found it later in life. I see these young people now who go to prom with like, that's so fucking cool. I wish I had that. And I don't. The movie Bottoms that came out that I sent yeah. you is this lesbian fight club in high school. Uh-huh. And these girls are starting a fight club to meet more girls. Yeah, I love that. Because they're like the only two out people. And I'm just like, what the lives that this would, even just for me, my sense of queer culture would have shifted so much. Because, you know, just not knowing anything about it. You know, my aunt had a couple of friends that were gay and they were explained to me as being roommates, you know, until I was older and got that they weren't, you know, but I don't know. It just would have been so transformative. Yeah, it would have been transformative. I think I also didn't get some family support that I needed. That's also helped being sober to work through that. I just I think some people have it and some people have embracing communities. And I think it's cool that younger people have that now. I I know a lot of younger people don't, though, too, in certain areas of the United States and the world. But well, in thinking about your art again, do you feel like this pressure to be an advocate for lesbians everywhere or, you know, like that feels like an unfair thing to put on yourself. Yeah. No, I don't. I'm not. I don't want to be the spokesperson for anything. And that's why I'm also hesitant to talk about sobriety in this way. But I also for me, I also want to talk about it because it's like. You know, being gay or queer, you're not supposed to talk about it. You know what I mean? Being sober, you're not really like a lot of these things. Like, I want to talk about real stuff. Yeah. And I think that this is only my experience. And I I want to make work that I want to see in the world that I haven't necessarily have seen in the world. Mm-hmm. Nicole Eisenman came when I was an undergrad at Cleveland Institute of Art. And I graduated in 1999 from that school. It was a five-year program. And so she came in, I don't know, the 90s. And she put up this slide and it was an ink drawing of a lesbian kissing booth. And I remember sitting in the audience being like, holy, she actually made this piece. Right. And it was really, that was the first piece I saw that it was like, oh, I'm seeing myself in this way. But I just want to make work that I want to see in the world. And I want to have these conversations. And if you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't, you know. Yeah. Do you feel like your work does open up a lot of conversations or is it something because I don't always feel like we talk about the work as much as we should. It feels almost like, you know, everything exists on Instagram. Yeah. And then these conversations like don't happen as much or I don't know, there's like an overload or something around the artist lecture or whatever, you know, and maybe it does reach the people it needs to reach anyway, but how do we make space for that more? I think people have a short attention span and I think people forget things. I feel like an hour long, even this, I'm like, oh, so I'm going to listen for an hour. But I think that my work and my life are kind of all, there's not a separation and I know some people are like, oh, your Instagram's just for your art, just show your art. It's just not like my art is about my life and my life is about my art. I, I don't separate that stuff. It makes sense for you to be more like autobiographical because your art is such a reflection of your every day. Yeah. And I think I have changed through the years. And the beginning part of my work was really about how do I fit in? I was always taught if you look good, then you are good. Mm -hmm. And I never really felt like I fit in. That was probably also why I drank. Um, I didn't fit into straight society. I didn't fit into gay society. I didn't fit in as like the artist. I didn't fit in like just like finding myself. And so a lot of these pieces that I was making about like Louis Vuitton or Mm -hmm. high-end luxury goods was about me owning it, owning the stuff, talking about it as a facade that it's made out of paper, hot glue, and paint, and that it can fall apart. And then also commenting about consumerism and 
that people that have money get treated differently. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? If you look a certain way, you get treated differently. If you have a lifestyle that's acceptable by society, that's patriarchal. And now I feel like I've done that. This is also something I think in that question that you just said about making that one type of art and then your collector has it and then you have to make that piece over and over again. Yeah. Like I never felt like I fit into that because I mm. I want to be free in my work. Totally. Do you know what I'm saying? hundred percent. It feels rebellious. It feels anti-capitalist to make work in projects or and almost anti-patriarchal because it's all tied together and it feels yeah. like if you're not fitting into their model... You're like, in a way, disrupting it, even though I hate that word. That's yeah. just what came to me. But yeah, <laughs> no, I get it. <laughs> Sorry, I get everyone. You. I get you. Yeah. But no, I mean, it is true. I made all that high-end luxury good stuff, and I don't really make that anymore. Yes, I'll make a little perfume bottle, and I have some of those pieces still in my collection. And I'm not opposed to not making that again, but I feel like I've expanded in this way I'm not saying that in like an ego way. I just, I want to talk about that still, but I want to talk about some other things as well. Like my everyday. Yeah, you're bringing in this realness quality to it. Because I mean, it's almost like you're taking the premise of the luxury goods world as an illusion, but then they almost become more like monuments or little tributes to the everyday, even though, you know, doing the dishes and the construct of our homes and everything is kind of like a fabrication of what we think we're supposed to be doing. I don't know how you feel about the metaphysical world, but yeah, the physical world is like in its own way an illusion. So I feel like your work gets to that. But then this more personal work, like doing the newspapers, I feel more about documenting and, and making it special. Yeah, I just observing, I think, and looking. I made this drawing of What's in my trash can in my bathroom? <laughs> it was like wait, you just did that. Well, it's a it's at a show right now that's up at um, what's that about at Anthony Meyer? That's oh, safe cool. curated. Oh, cool. One of the little drawings in the cluster is a drawing of the trash can in my bathroom. Brilliant! I love that. I just was looking. I'm like, there's some beautiful colors in here. This is kind of abstract. It's part of what are we throwing away or the compost bin? And I know that's like hippy dippy and I'm not really hippy dippy, but like those types of. You're not like not hippy dippy living in Berkeley though. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I don't have chickens and eggs. Right. And um, okay. fair enough. You know, I'm not doing, I'm not microdosing. Like I'm sober, sober. I'm not California sober. Like that's fine. Microdose all you want, smoke your heart out. But for me, I can't do that. I mean, if I open a bag of chips, it's over with. You know what I mean? Like, oh, really? I mean, wait, what? <laughs> no, I'm just like, no, I mean, like compulsion. It's like, you know what I mean? I do. I'm trying just to be present. Yeah. And deal with sitting in the pain and whatever that is. I wanted to ask, you are a big swimmer. Yeah. I'm that not... feels very meditative and like talk about being present. Yeah. I'm not. I, you know what? I think people think I'm a big swimmer. Oh, funny. <laughs> okay. So Uh-oh. I got sober. I drove, you know, I I used to teach at Sonoma State. I'd drive across the Richmond Bridge, look at Alcatraz. I would drive across the Bay Bridge, look at Alcatraz. And I was like, I could do this. Like, this is a bucket list thing. Mm-hmm. And I, about five or six years ago, I did it. You swam to Al- Alcatraz? I swam Alcatraz, yeah. That's crazy. It, yeah, it what? was crazy. It You want to talk about fear. I had never been in more fear in my life. I mean, the water's freezing. It's If you hold your hand up, like not even six inches from your eyes, you can't see it. It's that kind of dark and murky in the water. Is Um, it clean? No, No, the current's bad. When we jumped in, so you take a boat out to Alcatraz and then you jump off the second level of the boat, second story. And they had just let a freight ship go by container ships go by and so there's six foot waves so we jumped and then oh my god you can't see the land when you jump right you know and so where do they let you off right at alcatraz you oh and then you just swim you swim into a aquatic park there oh interesting and so i think this was hands down the best thing i ever did 
besides getting sober and marrying Jen or like not even marrying, I mean, we're married, but just being with Jen and being 100% present for Jasper, my kid. It is something like when I started at SF State, you do faculty week. And so you're there with all these people that just got tenure track and from all different colleges in the university. And they're like, tell us something about yourself. You know, some people are like, oh, I make bread. Like, that's uh-huh. cool. But it's like, <laughs> I swim Alcatraz. And I Literally. swear to God, like, I had five new friends at the table I was sitting at. And I'm not, it's not an ego thing. It was like something I had to do and I wanted to be done with it before I even started. And I was you did working with somebody through my program. And they're like, you are not part of the journey. You just want it to be done which is all of this, right? Like everything we go through, we're not patient. We want the sales. We want the shows. We want that, like all this stuff, right? Oh, 100%. So I just had to like do it. And then like I had only swam in the bay like three times before that, before the big swim. And like, wait, really? Yeah. And then like you didn't even train I trained in a pool. What? And I trained in the pool and I watched the masters swimmers next to me. This is about self-doubt because okay. I was like, Libby, you're not doing this right. This is all about like taking care oh. of myself. Right. You're not doing this right, Libby. You're not doing it. And I did it. I was like, all I got to do is swim 90 laps in 45 minutes and okay. I, I'll be able to make it because you never like do like the full training right like you don't do the full marathon to prepare you do like 10 miles yeah yeah but just self-doubt self-doubt all the way so I jump in and I'm like Libby get home just get home so I'm like swimming swimming and then I read somewhere like stop for a minute and look and take a moment you're in the middle of the bay enjoy it I mean also my biggest fear is sharks okay Jasper surfs and sometimes like he's been surfing a couple times and I'm on the beach watching him and I'm like you could not even get out there fast enough to save him right so this whole thing and letting go right because I have to constantly let go every day and swimming 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 and I get I get done and I do it in 47 minutes oh my god wow um, and how far is that? It's a, like a mile and a quarter, but you kind of have to swim out and then into the opening because if you miss the opening to Aquatic Park, you can't swim up the current to get back in. Oh, well. So they'd have to boat and get you. Yeah. And at, at some point I was out there and I'm like, I could drown and no one would see me. But it was like the hands down the best thing I've ever done in my life. I encourage anybody to do something like that, to live I'm not saying go down and look at the Titanic by any means. <laughs> no. <laughs> With your billion dollar boat. Do not do that. Just go on a swim or go on a hike somewhere mm-hmm. and just push yourself a little bit to know you can do it. Yeah, that's definitely like a Cheryl Strayed type moment. Are you a fan of Wild? Oh, yeah, Brave Enough. I got that book by my bed. Do you have that book? I don't know that one. It's a little book that they're just like little quotes. I read a couple this morning to Jen. Oh, cool. Yeah. That hike, I would love to do that. Me too. But I got a bad back. But I just want to say for the record, I'm, I swim in the pool. You do? I haven't been in a couple months. I just have two, I have two new tattoos on my ankle right now. So I, I'm not going to swim. And I'm going to have a surgery coming up that I won't be able to swim for six weeks. So I, I go through phases. But... It is a full body high. Yeah. And the sound of the water and breathing. It's so hard for me to get there. But every time I get out, I'm like, this is the best thing that I've ever done for my like swimming is it. Well, um, I wanted to ask if you believe in ghosts or have any ghost stories. I think there are spirits out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I've definitely been in places where I've like, well, when I had the residency at the Headlands, there is oh, some yeah. shit happening up there. <laughs> like I would be like in the projects, but there was like a, a week at the end because I had the MFA one out of my class. And so at the end, we could live up there for a week and be in the big project space. And I'd be up there at 10 o'clock at night. It wasn't even that late. And the lights weren't that good. But like way in the corner of the studio, I'd be like, there is some movement Oh, wild. And it was like, I slept with the lights on, my clothes on, on top of the sheets. like Because you would like sleep out there. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I don't have any like, I believe that there's stuff. Like, I believe we should not be going down looking at the Titanic. That oh, is not what we should be doing. There's 
people died and that was tragic and why it's not Disneyland. You know what I mean? Like to me. Yeah. Oh, interesting. That's like karma. Do you know what I mean? Oh, that's so that's interesting. That's my opinion. What do you think about that? Um, Yeah, I actually hadn't thought about that that way. I do think like I went to Sedona a couple months ago uh-huh. and we went on a hike in the one of these parks right by this big resort. Do you know Sedona at uh-uh. all? And there's these caves that had petroglyphs on them. Uh-huh. And so we were like, why don't we hike out? to where those caves are, which was a little farther than our original destination. But we were kind of like, you know, it was still light out. We had like maybe an hour. And as we started, there was three of us. Our phones were really low on batteries. So like all of us like turned them off because we were like, right, uh, there's a sign, right? OK, that was one sign. We got many signs. And then we kept going and then we ran into this group of girls who were on their way back and they were like, oh, you guys are really brave to go right now. Uh And we're like, yeah, we are. (laughs) You know, like we're tough. So we kept going. And then we ran into multiple people who gave us different amounts of time for how long it was going to be until we got to the caves. Uh And we never made it because we kept getting like, oh, it'll be 30 minutes from here, 20 minutes. And we kind of just kept going until... Finally, we were like in this valley between the two of the mountain areas and we're like, it's going to get really dark. We should probably turn around. Yeah. So we finally were just like, yeah, we're going to give up because we don't see anything that they're talking about. We don't know where the caves are at this point because we don't have our map on. So we started turning around and then we got back to kind of where we had decided to go. And it was just like so dark and we took like a turn and we're like, this is the wrong way. So then we had to go back. We ended up basically going through the bramble and one of the three of us had enough battery on her phone just to turn the light on uh-huh. and to see that the resort that was adjacent to the park was actually close by. Uh-huh. So we like went through the bramble with her light on, found the edge of this resort that had like a locked gate and like a, a help phone. Oh. And we ended up calling the help phone and someone with a golf cart came up to the edge and like unlocked the gate and let us in. But we later found out that the caves are actually sacred Native American grounds where they d- did rituals and everything and they don't want people going. Yeah. And so even as we were walking out there, we were feeling like there was this trickster energy that was like kind of keeping us from actually being able to go. Yeah. And we kept getting confused and kind of contradicting ourselves about whether or not we should keep going. And so after having gone through all that, it felt like absolutely there was like energies that were messing with us because I felt like none of our brains were working correctly at some point. You know, we were kind of doing things we wouldn't normally do. And I'm really like I never get lost. Like if you set me on a path and then I take a left. I have like a homing device where I started and I can just find my way back. But we totally got disoriented. So I I do feel like that reverence for things like that needs to kind of be worked in. And I think it's easy to forget that there are like energies that have other priorities, you know, or like, you know, house spirits too. I think there's like going into someone else's home, you know, like going in with reverence. We need to just accept that, that we don't need to go to every place, you know? Totally. Yeah. It's like this colonizer kind of approach yeah. where you have a right to go exactly. everywhere and yeah. claim things as your own. Yeah. Well, do you have anything coming up, not to switch to- no. topics too yeah. much, but anything coming up you want to share? Yeah, I got some things coming up. I, yeah, they're not fully, yeah, I got some things coming up. Probably can't talk Mysterious. about Mysterious, okay. I mean. That's cool. I've got some, I, you know what I have to say, I'm, I feel very fortunate that I keep thinking, oh, I'm this old lady and the women's career, you know, like mm-hmm. these women always talk about like, oh yeah, I don't know. I don't even think about that. So when these older women artists talk to me about like, being found when they're dead 20 years like mm-hmm. you know what I mean I just feel lucky that people keep asking me to be in shows you know and I keep having a couple things ahead 
I also love it when I don't and I'm like, oh, I can just make work, but I've always just yeah. made work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I feel like. Yeah. Do you make work for a show or do you kind of like to have or if you have your preference? I do a little bit of both. I mean, there's a thing that's coming up that I'm working with the director at this place, this curator director, and it's very specific making these objects specific to the show oh it's books because i make a lot i remake books but mm -hmm. it's specific to this one institution and i like that i like giving an assignment kind of mm -hmm. and then i also just like making drawings of my trash can in my bathroom yeah i think you that's know. so awesome yeah i'll put that's an image of that on our instagram you should, yeah, <laughs> that would be good i'll send it to you okay perfect yeah well, thank you so much. I'm excited to see what your secret project is. Um, yeah. yeah, I appreciate you coming for the interview. Yeah, thank you, Sarah. It's been great watching you make work through the years and being in community and talking to people. I think it really helps people out and helps the art world. So thanks for your service to that. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I learned from the best, so... <laughs> That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for side wooing with us. We release episodes every other week on Thursday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, follow, subscribe, and review our podcast for good karma points. Until we meet again in the side room.